We need an attention movement to reclaim our minds. And I absolutely believe we can do that. We don't have to tolerate this. We don't have to accept our minds and our children's minds being diminished in the way that they are right now. These are relatively recent changes. They are not acts of God. They're not magic. They're things that have been done by humans and they're things that can be undone by humans. Hey, so long-time listeners know I'm a little bit obsessed with the area of attention. I have come to believe over a period of years that the quality and richness of our lives is in no small part determined by the depth and quality of our attention. If it's massively distracted, perpetually spinning out, focused on negativity, that will also largely be the state of our lives, regardless of the actual objective circumstance of our lives. And that is where we're going in today's powerful conversation with my guest, Johan Hari. So Johan is a writer and journalist whose work has appeared everywhere from the New York Times to Le Mans, The Guardian, and many other newspapers and media outlets. His TED Talks and now this viral video have been viewed something like 100 million times. And his work has been praised by a broad range of people from Oprah Winfrey to Noam Chomsky. He was the executive producer of the Oscar-nominated film, The United States versus Billie Holiday. And following an incident with his godson a few years back, he decided to turn his attention to the topic of attention, exploring what attention actually is, how it affects us, our mental and physical health, our relationships, careers, and lives, and what our ability to either harness or lose control of it is doing to us and also how our world, technology, and global enterprise have built models designed to effectively hijack our attention, not in the name of the betterment of our lives or of humanity, but rather for their own good. And Johan goes deep into his research and ideas in the groundbreaking book, Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention, and we explore what he calls an attentional pathogenic culture, how it's making life both harder and sometimes sadder, and importantly, what we can do about it to reclaim our attention and in doing so, reclaim our lives. So excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. 
Well, I want to dive in with you. Um, Great. You know, the story that you tell about um, your three months in Providence, I think, is really powerful, and I want to explore that a little bit. But there was also, it sounds like there, there was an inciting incident even before you decide to go deep into attention and before you have this really fascinating three-month experience in Providence, which was the relationship with your godson, who had this sort of obsession with Elvis, that I guess a little bit later in life, when he was struggling a little bit, led to this moment with you that awakened you to the fact that something's happening around here that even preceded this three-month sabbatical in Providence. Talk me through that experience a bit. And just to say, it's an easy mistake to make. It's it's Province Town, not Providence. It would have been much less glamorous Ah, to spend three months in Providence. (laughs) But although I have been to Providence, Rhode Island, it's very nice. No disrespect to them. Um, Yeah, well, when he was nine, my godson developed this brief but freakishly intense obsession with Elvis Presley. I never even discovered how he found out who he was. And it was particularly cute because he didn't know that Elvis had become a cheesy cliche. So I think he was the last person in the history of Western civilization to do an entirely sincere impression of Elvis. And when I tucked him in at night, he would get me to tell him the story of Elvis's life again and again. And I tried to skip over the bit at the end where Elvis dies on the toilet, obviously. And one night I was tucking him in and I mentioned Graceland where Elvis lived. And he said to me, Johan, will you take me to Graceland one day? And I said, sure in the way you do with nine-year-olds, knowing next week it'll be Disneyland or whatever. And he said, no, do you really promise? Do you swear one day you're going to take me to Graceland? And I said, I absolutely promise. And I didn't think of that moment again for 10 years until so many things had gone wrong. So he, he dropped out of school when he was 15. And by the time he was 19, he spent literally, this is not an exaggeration, almost literally every waking moment alternating between his iPad and his iPhone And his life was just this blur of WhatsApp, YouTube, pornography, the social media sites. And it was almost like he was kind of whirring at the speed of Snapchat, where nothing still or serious could touch him. And one day we were sitting on my sofa just next to where I'm talking to you now. And I'd been trying to talk to him all day. And just nothing was getting any traction. And to be totally honest with you, I wasn't that much better. I was staring at my own devices and I suddenly remembered this moment all those years before. And I said to him, hey, let's go to Graceland. And he looked at me completely blankly, didn't remember this. And I reminded him and I said, no, let's let's break this numbing routine. Let's go all over the South. But you've got to promise me one thing, which is that when we go, you'll leave your phone in the hotel during the day. And he thought about it and he said, yeah, I could see that breaking this routine really appealed to him. And I think it was two two weeks later, we, we took off from Heathrow in London to, to New Orleans, where we started. And a couple of weeks later, we arrived at the gates of Graceland. And when you get there, this is even before COVID, there's no one to show you around. What happens is they hand you an iPad and you put in some earbuds and the iPad shows you around. It says, go left, go right. It tells you a story about that room. And everywhere you go, the, the, every room you go into, there's a, a picture of that room on the iPad. So what happens is everyone just walks around Graceland staring at their iPads. And I'm getting sort of slightly irritated by this. And, and we got to the jungle room, which was Elvis's favourite room in Graceland. It's full of fake plants. And there was a Canadian couple next to us. And the husband turned to his wife and said, Honey, this is amazing. Look, if you swipe left, you can see the jungle room to the left. And if you swipe right, you can see the jungle room to the right. And, and I laughed out loud. I thought he was kidding. And I turn and watch them and they're just swiping back and forth. And I 
I leaned over and I said, but hey, sir, there's an old fashioned form of swiping you could do. It's called turning your head. Because look, we're in the jungle room. You don't need to look at it on your iPad. We're, we're actually there. And they looked at me like I was completely deranged and backed out of the room. And I turned to my godson to laugh about it. And he was standing in the corner of the room staring at Snapchat because from the minute we landed, he couldn't stop. And, and I went up to him and I did something that's never a good idea with teenagers. I tried to grab the phone out of his hand and I said, I know you're afraid of missing out, but this is guaranteeing that you'll miss out. You're not showing up at your own life. You're not present at your own existence. And he stormed off. So I wandered around Memphis on my own for the rest of the day. And I found him that night at the Heartbreak Hotel where we were staying just down the street. And he was sitting by the swimming pool and I went up to him and he, he was just kind of scrolling. He didn't look up at me, but I, I apologised. And, and he carried on staring at Snapchat, but he said, I know something's really wrong here and I don't know what it is. And I realised, oh, we, we'd come away to try to deal with this crisis in being present. But that crisis was everywhere. It felt like there was no escape. And that's when I thought, okay, I need to figure out what's going on here. I need to investigate this. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, right? Because as you mentioned, you're observing that in him, but it's also you. It's like, we're, we're all in this place where we're trying to figure it out from the inside looking at. You know, we're inside the jar and trying to read the label on the outside to a certain extent. So, Oh, I love that analogy. That's a brilliant yeah, analogy. That's an excellent way of putting it. Not mine, by the way. It's a, a dear friend, <laughs> Charlie Gilkey. I give, give him full credit. Ah, um, interesting. I wish I'd known that when I was writing the book. I would have used it. That's a great line. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this, it sounds like it triggers something in you. Not too long after that, you take this time, you know, like you're in a point in your career where you, you've got a window where you can say, okay, so let me actually run this experiment and you effectively go and, and you take a sabbatical and you spend three months withdrawn from technology, really experiencing like, what is this like? What is it doing to and for me? Tell me about that experience a bit. When I came back from Memphis, I was so horrified that I just thought, you know, I was in this lucky position. One of my books was being made into a film, so I had some money. And I just thought, I'm, I can't take this anymore. And the stories I had in my head, so my own ability to focus had been getting worse it felt like with each year that passed, things that required deep focus, like reading a book, having proper conversations, watching long movies, things that are so deep to my sense of self, were getting more and more like running up a down escalator. You know what I mean? I could still do them, but they were getting harder and harder. And I just thought, I, I can't take this anymore. And because the stories I had in my head about why my own attention had been getting worse, at the time were, I later realised these were, in fact, wrong or, or hugely oversimplified. I basically had two stories. One is I thought, well, you're just weak. You don't have enough willpower. Why aren't you strong enough? Why can't you resist this? And and secondly, I thought, well, someone invented the smartphone and that screwed me over, right? So if those are the two stories you have in your head, there's a kind of logical solution. Use your willpower to separate yourself from the smartphone. So I decided to go for three months to a place called Provincetown in Cape Cod, which people who don't know it is a little kind of gay resort town. It's um. It's the kind of place where more than one person makes a full-time living by dressing as Ursula, the villain from The Little Mermaid. A great place. And I, I left my phone, my internet-enabled phone and my internet-enabled laptop in, in Boston, and I literally got a boat to flee them. And lots of things happened in those three months in Provincetown. There were some ups and downs. But the thing that most surprised me, you know, I was nearly 40. I thought, well, maybe I just got older. Maybe that's why my attention isn't good. 
my attention went back to being as good as it had been when I was 17. I could read eight hours a day. I was stunned by the level of improvement. I later learned there were actually many things that changed in Provincetown that that boosted my attention, not just separating myself from the technology. But so I remember at the very, I remember the last day I was in Provincetown going to what's it called Long Point, which is where the lighthouse is. And looking back over the whole of Provincetown and thinking about this time and thinking about, you know, I would say to anyone listening, think about anything you've ever achieved in your life that you're proud of, whether it's starting a business, being a good parent, learning to play the guitar, whatever it is. That thing that you're proud of required a huge amount of focus and attention. And when your focus and attention break down, your ability to solve your problems breaks down. Your ability to achieve your goals breaks down. And what I'd felt like I'd got back in Provincetown was a sense of my own competence. I felt competent again, like I could follow through on things. I remember thinking, well, why would I ever go back to how I lived before? Why would I ever go back to that? And I went back, I got very sick on the ferry back. Um, It was a quite choppy journey. And I got my phone back and I got my laptop back. And within a month, I was 80% back to where I'd been before I went. No, I never went entirely back. And I only really understood why when I went to Moscow in, in Russia to interview Dr. James Williams, who, who had worked at, he'd been a senior strategist at Google, was appalled by what they were doing to our attention, left and became, I would argue, the leading philosopher of attention in the world. He was living in Moscow because um, his, his wife works for the World Health Organization there. And he said to me, look, the mistake you've made here, Johan, is it's like you thought the solution to air pollution was for you personally to wear a gas mask, right? Now, I'm not opposed to gas masks. If I lived in Beijing, I'd wear a gas mask. But it's not the solution to air pollution. The solution for air pollution is to go to the source of the pollution. And it took me a long time to really absorb the the lesson of what he'd said. But eventually I was able to expand my understanding of what was happening based on partly on what he said. Yeah, I mean, it's it's telling that, you know, you have this experience, you awaken to the fact that there are all these benefits. And being fully aware, you go back and within a matter of weeks, or sort of back into like this same routine. It really does describe the the experience I think so many of us have, where even knowing what's going on doesn't necessarily allow us to remedy the problem. There's a, a, a phrase that you describe, living in an attentional pathogenic culture. What do you actually mean by that? Well, that was a phrase that was used to me by Professor Joel Nigg, who's one of the leading experts on children's attention problems. And he was posing it as a question that we should ask if we're living in an attentional pathogenic environment. So I think what he was doing was making a play on there's a concept that's very well established in science, that the contemporary in the contemporary United States, we, we have what's called an obesogenic environment. If you look at a picture of a beach in the United States in 1960, it looks really strange to us now. I just say to put on Google them because everyone is what we would call slim or buff. And you think of first, well, where, where's everyone else? And then you look at the, the evidence, and there were almost no obese people in 1960 in the United States. And then a whole series of changes in the environment happened. Um, our entire food supply system changed. We built cities it's impossible to bike and walk around, and we became more stressed that makes people comfort eat. So we created what, what's called an obesogenic environment. In the contemporary United States, it's easy to become obese and hard to avoid it. And I think what Professor Nigg was doing there, and he did obviously talked about the analogy with obesity, is something similar is happening to our environment. So to understand this, I, I end up going on this big journey all over the world from Miami to Melbourne to Montreal. And I interviewed over 200 of the leading experts in the world about attention and focus. So what I learned from them 
is there's actually scientific evidence for 12 factors that can make your attention better or can make it worse. And loads of the factors that can make your attention worse have been hugely rising in recent years. These include aspects of our technology, some aspects, not all, but they also go way beyond them. The food we eat, the sleep we don't get, the air we breathe. There's an enormous array of factors that are bearing on our on our attention. And this is why, you know, the book is called Stolen Focus, because I realised our attention didn't collapse. Our attention has been stolen from us by these big forces. But once we understand those forces, we can begin to deal with them. And there's sort of two levels at which we have to deal with them that I talk about. Yeah, I think it also makes sense for us to talk about, you know, when you think about, okay, so there are these 12 different factors, many sort of um, almost on a systemic level, or there are things that are, they're part of our built environment in no small part these days. What I want to ask also is, why do we care about this? So when we're talking about attention, when we're talking about attention being stolen from us, when we're talking about the fact that you know, like we live in a world where it's getting harder and harder and harder to focus, what is the effect of that? What's the effect on our mental health, our relationships, our creativity, our productivity, our performance, our, our humanity at large? Like, Why do and should we care so much about this? Well, to stay with Dr. Williams, who, who I mentioned, who, who's done brilliant work on this, He argues there are three layers of attention. I would argue there are four, and I put this to him and he agreed. So the first level is the one that we think about most of the time when we think about being distracted. And he calls it our spotlight. So your spotlight is your ability to filter out all the other things around you and narrow down to one thing. So in the room I'm in now... You know, I can see out the window. I can see the street if I if I just turn my head slightly. There's a television in my room. It's not switched on. Uh, somewhere in this room, there is my phone. It might be flashing up little messages for me. I'm filtering all of that out, and I'm listening to you. What did he just ask me? Oh yeah, he asked me about attention, right? So that's the most common form of attention that we think about. Spotlight is your ability to achieve your immediate tasks. So let's say I have here a can of Coke Zero, but it's nearly empty. So let's say I say, well, can we pause for a second and go to the fridge? And I go to the fridge to get another Coke Zero, but on the way there, I get a text from someone. I look at it. I forget why I went there and I come back without a can of Coke Zero. That would be an interruption to my spotlight, my ability to achieve my immediate short-term goals. That's one level of attention, obviously a very important one. And I think it's pretty obvious to everyone that that's being hugely interrupted. The average American office worker now focuses on any one task for only three minutes. Mm. But above that, there's another level of attention Dr. Williams calls your starlight. And your starlight isn't your ability to achieve your immediate tasks, but your ability to achieve more medium to long-term goals. Like say, I want to set up a business. I want to write a book, whatever it might be. He calls it your starlight because when you're traveling in the desert, if you don't have a compass or GPS, you look to the stars and you remember that's the direction you're traveling in. And I think that's clearly being disrupted as well. Above that, there's another level, which he calls your daylight, which is how do you even know what your long-term goals are. How do you know you want to set up a business? How do you know what the business is? How do you know you want to write a book? How do you know what you care about enough to write a book? You want to be a good parent. How do you know what it means to be a good parent? It's called your daylight because you can see a scene most clearly when it's flooded with daylight. And he argues that our our short-term and long-term attention is being so disrupted that it's damaging our ability to even formulate our goals, right? To know what you want to do, you've got to have periods of rest, of mind-wandering, of reflection. And we're just being denied those things at the moment, most of us. And I would argue there's a layer of attention even beyond that, which I would call our stadium lights. And that's our ability not just to achieve our own long-term goals, but our ability as a society to see each other and formulate collective goals, right? Think about, 
I don't think it's a coincidence that we're having a huge, the biggest crisis in democracy across the world since the 1930s, at the same time as we're having this huge crisis in our ability to pay attention. Clearly, it's not the only factor. There's lots of things going on. But a society of people who can't pay attention, can't think clearly, can't listen to other people and the other side will become more brittle, more angry, more bitter, especially if we're interacting through mechanisms that are designed to make us angry as social media is. We can talk about that more. So I would argue all of these four layers, when you think about it in this four-layer model, you begin to see why it's not just, oh, I'm, I'm a bit distracted. I couldn't quite, you know, I couldn't quite finish reading this long magazine article. This affects every layer of your life and the society's life. Mm, no, that makes a lot of sense to me. It, what popped into my head as you're sharing that is, so I'm a longtime meditator. Mindfulness has been my practice mm. for you know, the, over a decade. And somewhere along the way, the, the phrase meta-attention or meta-awareness came into the mm. conversation for me. And it, it's always been described, and, and when I have experienced it, as the ability to almost zoom the lens out and become aware, attentive to where your attention actually is at any given moment in time, which gives you the sense of agency and intentionality to then choose whether that's where you want it to be and redirect it if you want. Where does the concept of meta-attention or meta-awareness fit into that framework? Well, I think what you're describing is really important and I have lots of thoughts about it. So for all of the 12 factors that I write about in Stolen Focus that are harming people's, our ability to focus and pay attention, I would argue there's two levels at which we have to respond to it. There are all sorts of things that we can do as individuals to protect ourselves and our children. A lot of the book is about children to defend ourselves against these forces that are doing this to us. And I'm passionately in favour of those individual changes. They can make a real difference. Meditation is a, an excellent example of one of those individual changes. I also want to be really honest with people in a way that I think most attention books, frankly, aren't. Those things are really important, but they will only get you so far. Because at the moment, it's like we're living, it's like someone is pouring itching powder over us all day and then leaning forward and going, hey, buddy, you ought to learn to meditate. Then you wouldn't scratch so much. And you want to go, okay, I'll learn to meditate. That is hugely valuable, but you need to stop pouring itching powder on me, right? And, and so we need to have this other level. I think of it as defense and offense. We need to defend ourselves and our children as much as possible. Meditation is a terrific tool, along with lots, dozens of others I talk about in the book. But we also need to go on offense against the factors that are doing this to us. And that can sound very fancy, but I give lots of practical examples of places that actually did that and are doing that now in the world that we can follow. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. 
Only at Sleep Number Stores or SleepNumber.com. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lumi. So listen, we have all had those awkward moments where a BO strikes at the worst possible time. I'm often actually out in nature when I'm exercising, so I don't even notice it when I'm out. And then I walk in the door, kind of start to wrinkle my nose, and then I'm like, oh, wait a minute. That's actually me. That is why I'm so thankful I discovered Lumi Whole Body Deodorant. This revolutionary product, it was actually invented by an OBGYN who wanted a solution for her patients struggling with private odor. But Lumi doesn't just work, quote, down there. It provides incredible 72-hour protection for your entire body using mandelic acid. I kid you not, this stuff is a game changer. Lumi is safe and effective for pits, for feet, you name it. And as someone who's tried it, I can attest that it seriously works. The fresh scents are just an added bonus. So if you're ready to say goodbye to BO for good, try Lumi Starter Pack. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like mini body wash, and deodorant wipes and free shipping. As a special offer for our listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with the code GOODLIFE at lumideodorant.com. Don't miss your chance to experience the relief of true full body freshness. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit lumideodorant.com or just click the link in the show notes and use the code GOODLIFE. Good Life Project is sponsored by Quince. So my wife actually originally introduced me to Quince because she loves their clothing and I have been hooked ever since. I literally lived in their Mongolian cashmere ribbed beanie and pullover hoodie pretty much all winter. And as the weather warms up, I wanted more breathable summer pieces without overpaying. And Quince has just the super high quality items like linen shirts, performance polos, activewear at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the middleman to pass savings to customers. Actually just ordered a new European linen long sleeve button down shirt. Super excited to get that. And I'm always just so amazed at how they can keep their prices so affordable while the quality remains really high. So if you're looking to upgrade your wardrobe, I highly recommend you try Quince. Go to quince.com slash GLP for free shipping on your order and a 365-day return. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash GLP to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash GLP or just click the link in the show notes. Trust me, your wardrobe will thank you. So let's dive into those those the bigger systemic factors also, and then we'll loop around to some of the things that we can actually do, some of the interventions, the way that we can engage with this. But when you talk about and you use the word stolen in the title of your book, as you describe, because there's something bigger happening that is has the the, the sensation of this being taken from us on a larger scale. Um, you've referenced technology, and it's not just technology; it, it's the entire model, uh, the business model that's built around the way that we interact with technology. So take me deeper into that and how you see it really having a deleterious effect on our attention and then in turn the way that we actually are able to engage with and live our lives. Yes, yeah, so there's lots, you've put that well and there's a lot of layers to this. So let's look at an obvious example that will be playing out for virtually everyone who's listening today, unless they're very fortunate. I went to interview a man named Professor Earl Miller at MIT, who's one of the leading neuroscientists in the world. And he said to me, there's one thing you need to understand about the human brain more than anything else. You can only consciously think about one or two things at a time. That's it. This is a great, you know, meta-attentional insight. That's it. This is a fundamental limitation of the human brain. And the human brain has not significantly changed in 40,000 years. It's 
not going to change on any time scale any of us are going to see. You can only think about one or two things at a time. But what's happened is we've fallen for a mass delusion. The average American teenager now believes they can follow six or seven forms of media at the same time. So what happens is scientists get people into labs, not just teenagers, adults as well, older people as well. And they get them to think they're doing more than one thing at a time. And what they discover is always the same. You can't do more than one thing at a time. What you do is you juggle very quickly between tasks. Your consciousness papers over it. You don't quite, you're not aware of it, but you're switching. You're switching, switching, switching. What, what did he just ask me? What was that on the television there? What's this message on WhatsApp? Wait, what did he just ask me again? You're juggling. And it turns out that juggling comes with a really big cost. The technical term for that cost is the switch cost effect. When you try and do more than one thing at a time, you will do all the things you're trying to you're trying to do much less competently. You'll make more mistakes. You'll remember less of what you do. You'll be less creative. And this sounds like a small effect. It's a really big effect. Um, I'll give you an example from a small study that's backed by a very small study that's backed by a much wider body of evidence. Hewlett Packard, the the printer company, got a scientist in to study their workforce, and he split the workers into two groups. And the first group was told, just get on with your task, whatever it is, and you're not going to be interrupted. And the second group was told, get on with your task, whatever it is, but you're going to have to answer a heavy load of email and phone calls. And at the end of it, this scientist tested the IQ of both these small groups. The group that had not been interrupted scored on average 10 IQ points higher than the group that had been interrupted. To give you a sense of how big that effect is, if you or me got stoned together now, you're in Colorado, it's legal. If we sat down and smoked a fat spliff together... Our IQs would go down in the short term by five points. So in the short term, you'd be better off sitting at your desk, getting stoned and not being interrupted than sitting at your desk, not getting stoned and being interrupted all the time. Now, to be clear, you'd be better off neither getting stoned nor being interrupted, obviously. But you get a sense of how big this effect is. This is why Professor Miller said to me, we live in a perfect storm of cognitive degradation as a result of all these interruptions. But what you're getting at in your question, which is so important, is We are currently using technology that is designed to maximally interrupt us, right? This isn't my view. Listen to Sean Parker, who's one of the biggest initial investors in Facebook. He said, we designed Facebook to maximally distract people and invade their attention. We knew what we were doing and we did it anyway. God only knows what it's doing to our children's brains. That's what they say. And it's really important to understand this mechanism because actually It should really give us hope. You know, the way big tech want us to think about this debate is, are you pro-tech or are you anti-tech, right? And of course, we're not going to give up our tech. We're not going to join the Amish, nor would I want us to. No disrespect to any Amish people who are listening. I guess they're cheating if they are. Um, That's not the debate. The question is not, are you pro-tech or anti-tech? The question is, what tech designed for what purposes working in whose interests? So at the moment, Social media has been designed around one particular business model. It does not have to work that way. So I interviewed loads of people in Silicon Valley who designed key aspects of the technology us and our kids use all the time, right? And it took a long time for them explaining it for me to really understand this. So let's say anyone listening, if you don't do it, but if you open Facebook now or TikTok or Twitter, any of the social major social media accounts, apps, they start to make money in two ways straight away. The first way is really obvious. You see ads. Okay, everyone listening knows how that works. The second way is much more important. Everything you do on those apps is scanned and sorted by the artificial intelligence algorithms of those apps to build up a picture of who you are. So let's say that you clicked that you like, I don't know, Bette Midler, 
Bernie Sanders and you tell your mom you just bought some diapers. Okay, so it figures out you like Bette Midler and you're a man, you're probably gay. Uh, you like Bernie Sanders, you're probably left wing. And you, you're talking about buying diapers, you must have a baby. So they're building up a portrait of you. They've got tens of thousands of data points like that. They know who you are. And that's partly so they can sell you to advertisers, your attention. They want to sell all this information so advertisers can target you because you are not the customer of these apps. You are the product they sell to the real customer who's the advertiser. But more importantly, they're also learning the weaknesses in your attention so they can keep feeding you the things that will keep you scrolling. Because the more frequently you pick up your phone and the longer you scroll, the more money they make. So all these engineers in Silicon Valley, all these algorithms, all this engineering genius is built towards one thing, figuring out how can I get you to pick up your phone as often as possible and scroll as long as possible. But what's important to understand is social media doesn't have to work that way. There's a different way social media can work that's entirely achievable. And there's an analogy in American history that really helped me to think about this alternative. And you'll remember it. I remember it from when I was a kid. So not that long ago, the standard form of gasoline in the United States was leaded petrol, right? Leaded gasoline. And a bit before before my time, people used to paint their homes with leaded paint. And it was discovered that exposure to lead is incredibly bad for your brain and particularly bad for children's ability to focus and pay attention. So what happened? A group of ordinary moms, it was mostly mothers, banded together and said, why are we allowing this? Why are we allowing these companies to ruin our children's brains? It's crazy. And it's important to notice what they didn't say. They didn't say, so we're anti-gasoline. They didn't say, so we're anti-paint. They didn't say ban all gasoline and ban all paint. That would have been ridiculous. They said, let's ban the specific component in the gasoline and in the lead that is harming our kids' attention. They fought, they fought for years, they succeeded. As a result, the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, has calculated that the average American child is three to five IQ points higher than they would have been had lead not been banned, right? So you can see, to me, this is a really important model. We identify something in the environment that's banning our, that's harming our attention. We band together to act on the science. We get rid of that component while retaining the good stuff that was around that component. In the same way, so Asa Raskin, who invented a key part of how the internet works, his dad, Jeff Raskin, invented the Apple Macintosh for Steve Jobs. Asa said to me, you know, there's an equivalent to the lead in the lead paint. He said, ban the current business model for social media. Uh, what what the kind of fancy term for it is surveillance capitalism. He said, just te- just say that a model, a business model that is based on tracking you, surveilling you in order to figure out the weaknesses in your attention, hack them. That's just inhuman. Don't allow it. And lots of people had to say this to me before I really absorbed it. And I remember saying to Aza, okay, let's imagine we do that. We ban the current business model. And I open Facebook the next day. Would it just say, you know, sorry, everyone, we've gone fishing? He said, of course not. What would happen is they'd have to move to a different business model. And everyone listening has experience of the two different business models, almost everyone. The first is subscription. Okay, everyone knows how Netflix works. You pay a small amount, you get access. Another model, think about the sewers. Before we had sewers, we had feces in the street. We got cholera. So now we all pay for the sewers to be built and maintained, and we all own the sewers together. You own the sewers in Boulder. I own the sewers in London and Las Vegas, the cities where I live. We own the sewers in the places where we live. It may be that just like we want to own the sewage pipes together, 
we want to own the information pipes together because we're getting the equivalent of cholera for our attention. Now, whatever the alternative business model we choose is, the important thing to understand is all the incentives change. At the moment, the incentives for social media companies are to figure out how do we get you and your kids to pick up your phone as often as possible and scroll as long as possible. But in these different models, suddenly you become the customer. They have to go, what does Johan want? Oh, turns out Johan wants to be able to pay attention. Let's design our app not to hack his attention, but to heal his attention. Oh, turns out Johan wants to meet up with his friends offline because people feel good when they look into each other's eyes rather than scroll it staring through screens. Okay, let's design it to help people meet up offline rather than to prevent them from meeting up online. That's incredibly technologically easy. My friends in Silicon Valley could do that tomorrow. The key thing is we have to get the incentives right to do it. And we can do that, right? There's no more leaded paint. You know, just to say one last thing on this, James Williams, who I mentioned before, said to me, you know, the axe existed for 1.4 million years before anyone thought to put a handle on it. The entire internet has existed for less than 10,000 days. We can get this stuff right if we want to. Yeah. And, and when you describe it this way, yeah, it all makes sense. Um, and I think we've, we all feel like we've been living in that matrix for you know, like a chunk of time now. And you know, our attention is the big commodity. And because that leads to the accumulation of information, which creates identity profiles and, and there's value in that. When you look at Silicon Valley though, you know, like, so this is not a new problem. This is something that's been talked about for years now. And there have been, from what I recall, people who've tried to say, well, let's offer an alternative to this. You know, let's offer a platform where we can build community and it's not about you being the product. It's not about stealing your attention. It's not about selling your data and and serving up ads. And it's never entirely caught on. I'm actually thinking about podcasting right now, which may be the most successful version of this. So what's happening in the world of podcasting right now is, you know, the original model that that really built out the this still rapidly growing space was ad-based. Now we're seeing that on any on a much more frequent level offering subscriptions to listeners has become a really growing part of the business model in the podcasting world. And part of that promise is, is, you know, like you will get an ad free feed, you know, basically, um, you know, like we're not going to serve anything else into it. And the latest data that I've seen, you know, from all the insider stuff is that somewhere between three and 8% of listeners actually would raise their hand to say, I will pay to opt out of that experience where my attention is being interrupted. And the other 90-something percent are saying, I would rather have my attention interrupted and not pay. So what's going on here? Because there are we are being offered alternative models, but the vast majority of people are still not saying yes to it. Is that because we just don't realize what the cost is to us personally? I think there's a few reasons. I mean, it's a bit like saying... Uh, why should we deal with the obesity crisis because only a few people shop at Whole Foods, right? It's like, yeah, we've got a society where, you know, half of all Americans have less than $600 in savings through no fault of their own because that money was transferred to the rich. So do they choose to prioritise the tiny amount of money they have on avoiding ads? Well, no, because they don't have that much money, you know. So I think if you had a, a situation where wealth was distributed more evenly and people had the, the society's wealth was distributed reasonably as it used to be, um, we'd already be falsely nostalgic about the past, particularly around race, because there were many things wrong. But think about, look at the distribution of wealth in the 1950s in the United States between the working class, middle class and rich. It was very different. So well, I just think that tells you people don't have very much money and they've got other priorities and they're not wrong to have other priorities. They've got to feed their kids, right? 
So I don't think that tells you very much. What we've got now is a source of pollution. And the, the solution to that is not to say, well, let's just develop this little bubble over here, where, which isn't polluted. The solution is to deal with the source of the pollution, right? Um, so yeah, I, I think that's, that's, that's uh, a very important factor there. And I also think this is really important that we get this right now. Because at the moment, we're in a race. If you look at all of the 12 factors that I write about in Stolen Focus that are undermining our attention, many of them, not all, many of them are poised to get much more powerful across my lifetime and yours. You know, Paul Graham, one of the biggest investors in Silicon Valley, said the world will be more addictive in the next 40 years than it was in the last 40 on the current trajectory. Think about how much more addictive TikTok is than Facebook. Okay, now imagine the next crack-like iteration of TikTok that will be in the metaverse. So that's one side of the race. You've got these factors that are going to become more invasive if we don't act. On the other side of the race, we've got to have a movement of all of us saying, no, no, you don't get to do this to us. No, you don't get to hack and invade us and our children. No, we don't tolerate this. No, this is not a good life. No, we choose instead a life where we can think deeply, where we can focus, where we can pay attention. And again, it requires a shift in focus. You know, we are not medieval peasants begging at the court of King Zuckerberg for a few little crumbs of attention from his table. We are the free citizens of democracies and we own our own minds. And we can take them back both at the individual level to some degree, but more at the collective level. And that requires many collective changes that go significantly beyond that. Certainly a very important part of that is dealing with the current business model, which is explicitly designed to hack and invade our attention and needs to be stopped. Uh, and will become more sophisticated if we don't act. But there's many, many more factors. And it's important to say this, this is not pie in the sky. I went to places that dealt with, dealt with a lot of these problems. So let's think about another example. It's related to what we were talking about, sw- sw- the switch cost effect, right? So in France in 2018, they were having a huge crisis of what they called le burnout, which I don't think I need to translate. And the French government, under pressure from labour unions, and they would never have done it without labour unions pressuring them, set up a government inquiry to figure out, well, why the hell is everyone so burned out? And what they discovered is that 35% of French workers felt they could never stop checking their phones or their email because their boss could message them at any time of the day or night and if they didn't answer, they'd be in trouble. You know, I mean, I remember when we were kids, the only people who were on call were doctors, right? And they weren't on call all the time. We've gone from, you know, almost nobody being on call to almost half the economy being on call all the time. And I can give those people in that position all the lovely self-help lectures in the world about the benefits of unplugging and sleep and all those things. They can't do it, right? That's not a lovely liberating piece of advice. It's a cruel taunt to say that to them, which is why we need to build the collective solution. So what the French government, labour unions then pressured the French government to introduce a legal reform, which has been introduced. I went there just afterwards to, to France before the plague, obviously. So Every French worker now has a legal right to disconnect. And it just stipulates in the law very clearly, your work hours have to be defined in your contract. And you have the legal right when you leave work to not check your phone or your email until you come into work the next day or on Monday, right? So it's just restoring to people what your parents and my parents took for granted, that when you finish work, you finish work, right? Now you can see how that's one of the many collective changes I advocate for in Stolen Focus. It won't happen unless we fight for it. It only happened in France because French workers fought for it. 
that frees people up to make a lot of the individual changes that they need to make. So there's a complex relationship between the individual changes and the collective changes. And to just advocate the individual changes in the absence of this collective layer, which is what pretty much all other attention books do, is to me dishonest. It's a form of privilege, right? Most people can't do that on their own. They can't do what I did in Provincetown. They can't go with through us. My family can't do that. I couldn't do that until I, I had the freakish luck of one of my books being made into a movie. That's why we have to collectively change the way we live in targeted ways that deal with the factors that are undermining our attention. Yeah, I mean, it's so powerful to zoom the lens out like that. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. You made a point also that said basically it's not necessarily about dismantling the old. It is about reimagining something that is so much qualitatively more appealing and better that when we step into that container, the way that it makes us feel, we don't want to step back out into it. And I recall the the teachings of Gene Sharp, who was this professor emeritus who who passed a few years ago in his 90s who was sort of did a lot of the seminal research on nonviolent political revolution and wrote this book called From Dictator to Democracy that became the the handbook for so many revolutions around mm. the world and and one of his principles was you need to get really clear on what the qualities of this new thing are and then don't message down with the old whatever you picture as the oppressor like the, the central mission cannot be to topple the current dictator. The, it, it's got to be to reimagine something that is so much more desirable and appealing and then rally people to build that, that so many people start to move into this new solution, this new state, this new container, 
that the pillars that supported the old simply disintegrate. And whether it mm. remains in name only or not, you don't really care about. You know, The focus needs to be on where are we moving to? And so many of us are focusing on how do we change the old or how do we dismantle it? How do we mm. topple it? And I think it's a really important distinction to make. I love that. And it's particularly relevant at the moment because funny enough, Russian activists are literally talking about Gene Sharp for obvious obvious reasons. But the that, that I think that's fascinating and, and absolutely right. And if we think about them as pillars that we want to move to. So I'll give you an example. I, I love the way you framed that. I think it's really important. And I'll give you an example of one of the core pillars. So the last I guess quarter of the book is about our children because if kids don't form attention, they're going to really struggle when they're older to do it, right? It's still possible, but it'll be harder. So building children who can pay attention is absolutely fundamental to getting this right. And I go through lots of things that are bearing on our children. The food that's currently being fed to our children is profoundly harming their attention. Children sleep 85 minutes less than they did a century ago. That profoundly harms their attention. The way our school system is designed is catastrophic. If you wanted to design a school system, and this is not the fault of teachers at all who never liked it, if you wanted to design a school system that would destroy children's attention, you would build one around memorising completely pointless things for meaningless tests that make them stressed out and anxious. It's appalling. We can talk about all of that, but I, I would actually go to the biggest thing, which is, so there's been a huge increase in children's diagnosed attention problems. For every one child who was identified with serious attention problems when I was seven years old, there's now a hundred children who've been identified with that mm-hmm. problem. And all sorts of things are going on. Obviously, the business model that we've just talked about in terms of tech, many, many things. But I actually think there's one big overarching thing that we particularly can fix and costs nothing. <laughs> and is, I really, really recommend it. And I think we can do this absolutely in the in the short to medium term. So one of the heroes of my book is a woman called Lenore Skenazi. And she's the hero, not because she identified the problem, that's easy. She's the hero because she built the solution and one that every parent and grandparent can follow listening. So... Lenore grew up in a suburb of Chicago in the 1960s. And from when she was five years old, every morning she left the house on her own and walked to school, which was 15 minutes away. And she would generally bump into all the other five, six, seven, eight-year-olds who were walking to school because everyone walked to school on their own in her neighbourhood and indeed across the United States at that time. It was completely normal. When, when Lenore would get to near the school, there was a busy road. So there was a 10-year-old boy whose job was to help the five-year-olds cross the street. And then When she finished school at 3pm, she would leave and play freely in the neighbourhood for a couple of hours and then she would find her way home when she was hungry. Again, that's what everyone in the neighbourhood did. By the time, and I'm sure that's what your childhood was like, right? Very much, yeah. So by the time Lenore was a mother in, in Queens in New York in the 1990s, that had ended. In fact, by 2003, only 10% of American children ever played outdoors without an adult supervising them. And I think the 10% that did get to play outside got like 12 minutes a week. So it just ended. Childhood became something, even long before COVID, although COVID accentuated this, childhood became something that happened entirely behind closed doors and almost entirely under adult supervision. And it turns out that childhood we've lost contained all sorts of things that were essential for developing attention and focus in the healthiest possible way. To give you a real no-shit Sherlock example, exercise right? The evidence is overwhelming. We mentioned Professor Joel Nigg, the brilliant children's attention expert before. Kids who get to run around form more brain connections and can pay attention better. The single best thing you can do for children who can't pay attention is let them go and run around and come back. We are the first human society ever to try to get children to sit still for eight hours a day. It's madness, right? 
Um, but actually, there's something even more important. So in that free play, when children are playing freely with each other without adults standing over them, Dr. Isabel Benke, the great Chilean scientist, has, has done a lot of good work on this. It turns out when children play freely, they develop all sorts of things that are really essential for attention. They learn what interests them. That's really important for attention. They learn how to persuade other kids to pay attention to what interests them. They learn how to take turns paying attention to the things the other kids want them to pay attention to. They learn how to take risks, how to deal with anxiety. You try and climb the tree, you go too high, you get anxious, you realise you survived. Anxiety, Dealing with anxiety is essential for having a healthy sense of attention. We took all that away. And Lenore could see this was a disaster, right? She was ahead of the game on this one. And at first she thought, well, the solution is kind of obvious. I just need to persuade parents to let their kids play outdoors. So she would say to parents, tell me about something you did when you were a kid that you don't allow your own children to do. Hmm. And people, their eyes would light up. They yeah. took, I used to ride my bike in the woods. What, what comes to mind for you? Just like running around outside. <laughs> I mean... Spending yeah. time out in nature, you know, that was every day. Just like you just, what you described was very much my childhood. And as a parent now, I see as much as I value that and I try and it, it's so different because even as a parent though, when you try and introduce these ideas and create the space for it and like literally build it in, there are so many other forces that say, oh, no, you know, that that's actually not the way we do this thing called childhood right now. Exactly. So what Lenore discovered is exactly that insight that you're saying, which is, it doesn't actually work to just persuade individual parents because if you're the only parent who lets your child out, they get scared, you look crazy, and actually often people call the cops. Um, so Lenore began to run an organisation called Let Grow. It's letgrow.org. I really recommend everyone goes to them. Obviously, I write about her in the book. And what Let Grow do is they go to whole schools and whole neighbourhoods and they persuade everyone to give their kids increasing levels of independence that build up to letting their kids play outside and restoring childhood. So I went to a lot of Let Grow programs and I think of all the hundreds of conversations I had for Stolen Focus, I think probably the most moving was a Let Grow program in Long Island. I spoke to a 14-year-old boy who was a big, strong 14-year-old boy. He was taller than me and I'm not particularly short. And until this program had begun nine months before... He'd never played outside his home without an adult. Um, his parents wouldn't even let him go for a run around the block. I asked him why. And he said, oh, my parents are afraid of all these kidnappings, he said. This boy lives in a, a town where the French bakery is across the street from the olive oil store. And he had a level of fear that would be appropriate if he lived in Ukraine right now. Right? And then this Let Grow program began. And he started to play outdoors with his friends. I asked him what he did. He said, oh, we played ball games and um, uh, basketball first, but... Then he said, we decided to go into the woods. And he said, he said, there's a real awe. He said, our cell phones didn't have any signal in the woods and we still went there. And I said, what did you do in the woods? <laughs> and he said, we built a fort with our own hands. And now we go and sit in the fort and we build other things. And maybe this sounds melodramatic, but it really felt like as he was describing this, it felt like watching a child come to life. And I thought about how many kids I know who... The only place they ever get to explore anything is on Fortnite and World of Warcraft and Minecraft, right? We can hardly be surprised they become so obsessed with them. And Lenore was with me that day. And when that boy left, she turned to me and she said, think about human history and human prehistory. I think we're not meant to use that term, but you know what I mean? All throughout human history, children had to go out and explore. They had to map the territory. They had to hunt. 
They had to seek. They had to build things. And what we did is we took all that away. And that boy, given a tiny little sliver of freedom, what did he do? He went into the woods and he built a fort. Because it's so deep in human nature. And when we take that away from our children, we, we've psychologically and physically confined our children. And of course, if anything good can come out of the horrors of the last two years, I think we can realise... You know, whatever you think about the COVID restrictions, and I was broadly in favour of them, obviously to suppress the spread of an airborne virus, you have to stop people physically mixing. Um, But whatever you think about that, we can all see that this has had a catastrophic effect on our children. You know, I was in Las Vegas for a lot of the pandemic. The fact that the casinos were open and the schools were closed, that's a society that's got its priorities profoundly wrong, right? Uh, We should have put our children being able to mix with each other at the absolute top of the society's priority list and everything else can come later. Um, but what we can see, I think we can all see, okay, confining our kids for two years has terribly harmed them. Well, that should lead us to think, okay, confining our kids before that was really harming them. And now we can restore childhood. Obviously, in Stolen Focus, I advocate many things we need to do to restore attention, many individual goals and collective goals. One of them is we have to restore human childhood. Because at the moment, our kids are not getting a childhood that our ancestors would even recognise as a human childhood. And this is really achievable. This is something I have gone on the most left-wing radio shows, which I'm sure you can guess are much closer to my politics. And I've gone on the most right-wing Fox News shows. And I've got to tell you, everyone has enthusiastically agreed with this, right? We can do this. Every school in the United States should have a Let Grow program. It costs literally nothing. This is free, right? We can do this. And this is so important for restoring attention, because if we don't do it now and the kids don't get a sense of attention when they're young, what are we setting them up for? Yeah, I mean, what you're really talking about is an, an attention revolution starting with kids, you know, and planting those seeds early in life. Because if we don't plant them, what's the net effect on their lives? And then if you if you zoom the lens out, right, what's the net effect on society? What's the net effect on the world? What's the net effect on just our ability mm. to live and flourish as human beings more broadly? You know, And it sounds on the one hand, you're like, we're just talking about attention, man. Like, and now you're talking about the future of the human condition. And, and the answer, it's yes and. You know, like, it is that central to our ability to experience life the way that we want to experience life. And yet, it's something that I feel, it, you know, we've been evicted from our own lives through the device of, you know, like a, attention. And it's sort of a moment to step back into that. What you're really talking about is, Yes, there are all the individual things. Um, you list a bunch of them in your book. And we see them espoused in a lot of different places. But going all the way back to the beginning of a conversation where, you know, you talk about if somebody's pouring itching powder on you, like, or if you're in like a place where the, the air is so toxic to breathe, it's, we need upstream solutions now. You know, not instead of the immediate, what am I going to do myself, but in addition to, um, and I, I think that's a lot of the power of the work that, that, this book is about and this topic is about and that you've been doing is zooming the lens out, but also doing it in a practical way and saying, here are examples. This is the way it's been done. This is why it matters. And this is change that it's making. Um, and I think that's critical for this moment in time for, you know, for all of us, you actually write, there's a line where you write, we all have a choice now between two profound forces, fragmentation or flow. Fragmentation makes you smaller, shallower, angrier. Flow makes you bigger, deeper, calmer. Fragmentation shrinks us. Flow expands us. And I think we're feeling that tension right now. And that it, it's about like, what are we going to choose for our kids, for ourselves, for our world moving forward? It feels like an inflection point to me. 
I think that's, I love the phrase evicted from our own lives. I wish I'd thought of that myself. That's brilliant. No, you're right. We've been so taught to think of, and I used to think this way. I mean, it was recently as when I started working on the book, we've been taught to think of these problems as an individual pathology, right? Either it's a flaw in our child's biology or it's a flaw in our own adult willpower. Now, there are real biological contributions for some kids, but this is a much bigger picture that requires a much bigger solution. And if you're struggling to focus and pay attention, it's not your fault. This is happening to almost all of us. Um, It's happening for reasons that are entirely comprehensible, that have been demonstrated by scientists that are relatively uncontroversial. And you're right that what we lose when we lose attention, we lose many things, but we lose the ability to think deeply. And if you can't think deeply and you can't solve problems, I mean, think about the fact that we're, this is an inflection point for many reasons, but you know, we are facing an unprecedented series of tripwires and trapdoors as a species, right? Think about how urgently we need to deal with the climate crisis. You know, a species of people who can't think beyond a few minutes and spend their time screaming at each other on social media is not going to deal with the climate crisis. You've seen that our ability to deal with our collective problems has profoundly broken down in recent years. You know, I travel all over the US for my, my work, for research, and it's really frightening the degree of polarization and rage that has taken over the society. It is really frightening. I mean, I was in Vegas during the election and it, it really, this maybe this sounds hyperbolic, but what the US has increasingly reminded me of is Northern Ireland as it used to be when I first started going there 20 years ago, which is a highly tribalized society where everyone's trying to figure out what tribe do you belong to? In Northern Ireland, everyone's trying to figure out it's less bad now than it used to be, but are you a Protestant or are you a Catholic? It was an old joke, you know, you'd say I'm an atheist and they go, yeah, but are you a Protestant atheist or a Catholic atheist, right? And the US is really becoming like that. And, and there's lots of these underlying mechanisms. So if you think about another reason why we need to deal with the business model for social media, it is deeply related to this. It's something that we now know, Facebook itself knows from the leaked documents that we got, thanks to Francis Haugen, who used to work there. So to understand it, you have to slightly unpack something. Because I would argue it's not just our individual attention that's being destroyed, it's our collective attention that's being destroyed. So you have to understand this mechanism. So to, go, to recap, we currently have a business model, social media companies do, that means the longer you scroll and the more often you pick up your phone, the more money they make. So the systems are designed to figure out what will keep you scrolling and to feed you whatever will keep you scrolling. This next bit wasn't the intention of anyone at Facebook or TikTok or any of these places. But those algorithms that were scanning, okay, what keeps people scrolling? Bumped into an underlying human truth that's actually been known about by psychologists for almost 100 years. It's called negativity bias. It's really simple. Human beings will stare longer at something that makes them angry and upset than something than they do at something that makes them feel good. If you've ever seen a car accident on the highway, you know exactly what I mean. You stared longer at the mangled car wreck than you did at the lovely pretty flowers on the other side of the street. This is very deep in human nature. Ten-week-old babies will stare longer at an angry face than a happy face. But when this combines with algorithms that are designed to keep you scrolling, it leads to a horrific effect. So picture two teenage girls who go to the same party and leave and go home on the same bus. And one of them does an update where they say, I had a really nice time at that party. Every, it was great. Another one goes, Karen was a total skank at that party and her boyfriend is an asshole and just does an angry rant. So the algorithms are constantly scanning for the kind of language you use. And it'll put that first status update into a few people's feeds. 
it'll put the second status update into way more people's feeds. Because if it's enraging, it's engaging, it'll keep people scrolling. People will go, what do you mean Karen's a skank? You're a skank. You can see how it, how it, how it works. Now, that is bad enough at the level of two teenage girls at a party, right? We, we all know what's happened to the anxiety levels of teenage girls. But when that's applied to a whole society, well, we don't have to imagine it. Because everyone listening has watched the news in the last five years, right? Um, Facebook's own, after the election of, of Trump and the victory of Brexit... Facebook set up an internal inquiry of its data engineers to figure out, have we played a role in this polarisation? And we now know what the engineers found because it was leaked. They, of course, kept it secret. And the engineers came back and said, the growth of Facebook under the current business model is inherently tied to polarisation. It is inherently driving the society apart. And the only solution is for Facebook to abandon its current business model and move to a different business model, right? Um, The Wall Street Journal, when they reported on this, (laughs) had a very dry line where they said, Mark Zuckerberg asked that he never be brought any report like this ever again, right? So they know what they're doing and they know the effects, right? Think about, you know, the, 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 the genocide in Burma, Myanmar against the Muslim minority, the Rohingya. The UN warned that Facebook's algorithms had pumped up the hateful messages about the Rohingya and fueled that genocide. Think about what happened in Brazil when Jair Bolsonaro, the far right leader, was elected outside his supporters the night of the election chanted Facebook, 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 because they knew one of the key factors why he won, not the only one, of course. And even if the only effect was that it got Jair Bolsonaro elected, you know, Bolsonaro has accelerated the destruction of the Amazon rainforest, which will massively accelerate the climate crisis, which will affect every single person listening to this podcast. And it didn't only happen in Brazil, it happened in countries as different as Brazil, Britain and Burma. That t- the fact that it's happening everywhere, the same kind of polarisation, tells you that there are similar underlying mechanisms. So it's not just that we have to deal with these this business model because it is harming our individual attention. As Facebook's own data scientist said, it is causing such polarisation that it's destroying our ability to collectively pay attention to our problems, to talk to each other, to listen to each other and to solve problems. You know, I think a lot about you know, you'll remember this, I remember it well as a kid, the ozone layer crisis, right? So younger listeners might not remember this, but in the 80s, there was a chemical called CFCs that were in hairsprays and fridges. And we loved our hairsprays in the 80s that were going into the atmosphere. And it turned out they were causing, they were damaging the ozone layer, which was a protective layer of ozone that surrounds the planet and protects us from the sun's rays. And it was causing a a hole in the ozone layer above the Arctic. So what happened? That science was discovered. It was explained to the public who were able to distinguish the truth from nonsense, lies, conspiracy theories. The public pressured their political leaders all over the world. Very different kinds of governments, from Margaret Thatcher to the communist Soviet Union, all in response to that pressure banned CFCs. And now the ozone layer is healing, right? Now, I do not believe if the ozone layer crisis happened now, that we would respond in anything like the same way. I think you would get some people who would do the right thing and say, act on the science and they'd wear little ozone layer badges on their lapels and they'd build a whole identity around it. You would get other people who would say, how do we even know the ozone layer exists? How how, how do we even know it's there? Maybe George Soros made the hole in the ozone layer. Maybe evil Jewish space lasers made the hole in the ozone layer. All sorts of mad filth would start being said and we would just not be able to act at all. You know, so it's really important. I don't want to be nostalgic about the 80s. There were lots of things wrong in the 80s, but we've got to deal with these mechanisms because if we don't deal with this, we can't 
how can we get anything done, right? If we can't talk to each other, listen and, and think rationally, we, we're screwed. Yeah. You know, I think at the end of the day, it comes down to um, this is something I say on a fairly regular basis, attention is life. Um, the quality mm-hmm. and, the, and depth of our attention, I think in no small part, determines the quality and depth and lift of our lives individually and collectively. And I think this is really what you're speaking to and coming at from all these different angles and also saying, it's not just about you. Yes, there are things that you can do in your individual life, but let's zoom the lens out and let's talk about collectively what's really going on here and let's do some reimagining. I definitely encourage folks to dive into this piece of work because it really lays out in a lot of detail the, the, near your book. What's really going on also offers a whole bunch of like, it, it, and it's not fatalistic also. It says this is a tough moment, but there's hope and there are things that we can do and there are examples out there. Oh, I'm profoundly optimistic that we can deal yeah. with this. Um, you know, and when I get pessimistic, when sometimes people say to me, look, these forces are really powerful, right? I always say to them, it might sound strange, but when they say that to me, I think a lot about my grandmothers who I loved very deeply. You know, my grandmothers were the age I am now in 1963. One of them was a working class Scottish woman living in what in the US we'd call a housing project. And the other one was a Swiss woman living in a wooden hut on the side of a mountain. And in 1963, when they were the age I am now, neither of them were allowed to have bank accounts because they were married women. Their husbands had to control the bank account. It was legal for their husbands to rape them, as it was legal in every country in the world for a man to rape his wife. Um, My Swiss grandmother wasn't even allowed to vote. She didn't get the vote until 1970, right? And I think about their lives and how disfigured their lives were by sexism and misogyny. My grandmothers never got to have the lives they should have had. You know, my Swiss grandmother loved to paint and draw and they told her to shut up and get into the kitchen. And then I think about my niece's life. Now, I don't want to underestimate how far we've got to go or how much backlash is happening. But when my niece loved to paint and draw... We didn't tell her to shut up and get into the kitchen. We started Googling art schools, right? Even the craziest, deranged right-wing congressman for some crazy place wouldn't dream of saying that my, it should be legal for my niece to be raped and she shouldn't be allowed to have a bank account and she shouldn't have the vote, right? That would be unthinkable, right? Um, and so when people say to me, look, these forces you're saying we have to take on are really powerful. I say to you, I say to them, you're damn right. They're not a hundredth as powerful as men were in 1963. Men controlled literally every institution of power in the world, every company, every country, everything, right? And they had ever since those institutions had been created, except for a few, few hereditary queens along the way, right? The women of that generation did not give up. They got up and they fought and they said, we're not going to take this anymore. And I argue in the book, Although, uh, stress again, there are dozens of things we can do as individuals right now in our individual lives, and I'm strongly in favour of all of that, and I talk about it. I argue that to deal with this in the medium to long term, we just like we needed a need of feminist movement for women to reclaim their bodies and their lives, we need an attention movement to reclaim our minds. And I absolutely believe we can do that. We don't have to tolerate this. We don't have to accept our minds and our children's minds being diminished in the way that they are right now, right? These are relatively recent changes. They are not acts of God. They're not, you know, magic. They're things that have been done by humans and they're things that can be undone by humans. But this won't happen by accident. If we just do nothing, if all of us do nothing, look, these forces will continue to pillage and raid us and they'll get better and better at it. And they're already pretty damn good at it, right? 
but they're not gods, right? Mark Zuckerberg is a rather weak and mediocre person, right? We can, no disrespect to him, he's not the devil, but he's also not that impressive. We can push back against this if we want to, right? We can absolutely deal with this, but we have to understand the 12 underlying causes. Obviously, we've touched on a few. We have to deeply understand them. We have to follow the example of those mothers who didn't allow their kids to be poisoned with lead, right? There was a lot of lead. The lead industry was really powerful. They didn't just say, oh, well, what can we do? Let's individually try to dust our homes more. They took on these forces. And as a result, you know, they they won, right? We can win this one, but we have to fight. Mm. Elizabeth Warren said once, you don't get what you don't fight for. And of course, she meant peacefully fight. And whether you agree with Elizabeth Warren's politics or not, the, the principle is absolutely right. You don't get what you don't fight for. Mm. Yeah, powerful point. Feels like a good place for us to come full circle in our conversation as well. So as we zoom the lens out a little bit and, and uh, sit here in this container of good life project, if I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? To live a good life, you have to have a mixture of, you know, we want speed and buzziness and distraction. That's a healthy part of life. But you have to have space to think deeply and reflect and rest. You know, think about something as basic as we sleep 20% less than we did a century ago, right? We're denying ourselves even the most basic physical need for sleep, right? Uh, Which is having a disastrous effect on our attention, as Dr. Charles Seisler at Harvard Medical School said to me, even if nothing else had changed, but that we sleep 20% less than we used to, that alone would be causing a huge crisis in our attention and focus. So a good life is a life where we have depth as well as buzzy moments of excitement and speed, right? I'm not, I'm not, you know, telling everyone to go into their room and read a book all the time. We want to have both. M- almost everyone wants to have both. They want to be able to think deeply and they want to have moments of fun and buzz and speed, right? And we've gone way too far towards everything being vast acceleration, constant switching, and we can recalibrate and we have to recalibrate. Mm. Thank you. Oh, I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much. I meant to say, or my publishers tase me, that the book is available as an audiobook, ebook, or physical book, and people can get it at stolenfocusbook.com. Or I meant to say any good bookstore, but the truth is you can also get it at like shitty bookstores. We don't have like a quality <laughs> test where we don't let. You can also on the website, stolenfocusbook.com, you can listen for free to audio of conversations with loads of the experts that we've mentioned here and loads more that we, we haven't mentioned as well. Awesome. Love that. Hooray. <laughs> Hey, before you leave, if you love this episode, Safe Bet, you'll also love the conversation that we had with Adam Ghazali, neuroscientist, about the way our brain works, the way it functions, the way it holds on to certain experiences, emotions, trauma, day-to-day life, how we focus and don't focus, and also the interesting research that his lab is doing on psychedelics and how it affects our brains and our emotions and our mental and physical health. You'll find a link to Adam's episode in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, go ahead and follow Good Life Project in your favorite listening app. And if you appreciate the work that we've been doing here on Good Life Project, go check out my new book, Sparked. It'll reveal some incredibly eye-opening things about maybe one of your favorite subjects, you, and then show you how to tap these insights to reimagine and reinvent work as a source of meaning, purpose, and joy. You'll find a link in the show notes, or you can also find it at your favorite bookseller now. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Fields, signing off for Good Life Project.